One of the things that I want to address and make sure we communicate as a church um, is kind of the, the thing that I see happening beautifully within our church, um, with even those that aren't here, um, is the sense that we want to be unified despite what the culture is doing. And, um, and I think you guys are doing a beautiful job of that. This isn't like a shame on you. This is a keep doing what you're doing because um, we as a church want to continue to be unified under Christ. And that's the center of what our focus is because right now, you all know, um, culturally, we, even in this room, we could be very divided when we talk about politics, when we talk about masks, no masks. And I'm just going to like confront that right now and just say we're going to continue to be unified under Christ and not under anything else. And I hope you hear that. And I hope there's also a sense of respect for those that, um, that have a different opinion about how to handle what we're going through culturally right now. And so I just want to, again, affirm what's happening um, because some of you are wearing masks and some of you guys don't. And we want to respect that. But we also want to respect the fact that there's different approaches to how we handle this cultural moment and where we go in the next couple weeks and months and what happens and whatever it is. Um, I want us to continue to stay centered around Jesus. I think that's so core to who we are, who the church is meant to be, and what we're meant to be known for. If we're known for division, I don't, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here as a pastor, right? Like if somebody wasn't welcoming and said, come as you are, right? And so some of us have that approach of like, come as you are. And some of you are like, no, come with certain parameters. And so I'm not here to bash any opinion of what that looks like. What I'm here to say is let's stay unified. And if we have a difference of opinion of that, let's continue to love one another and stay core in that. Sound good? All right, cool. Um, just, I know that's serious, but I want to communicate that from the front of like the kind of people we want to be and the kind of church we want to be. So um, with all that said, um, I want to introduce Krista because Krista is our associate pastor and she preaches um, roughly once a month, but does a beautiful job. And what we try to do is have a shared voice. And so it's not just you hearing from me every Sunday. And um, I'm just excited to hear her open God's word. And so let me pray as we dig into that. Lord, thank you so much for time together. Thank you for a community where we can come together and rally around you, Jesus, and discover more about the life that we find in you. And so um, as Krista comes up and brings your word, Lord, I pray that you just continue to anoint her and speak through her in beautiful ways. In your name, amen. Well, that was nice. Good morning. Good to see everybody here. Uh, we are continuing this week, picking up. Uh, we're still in the first chapter of Mark, so we'll just jump into that. Uh, last week, Nate walked us through the declaration of John the Baptizer, who, in fulfillment of the words of Isaiah, announced the coming of the long-expected Messiah to the nation of Israel. And he said this, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. And then Nate brought us through the baptism of Jesus and God's affirmation of his sonship, that is Christ's embodiment of the divine. And that indicated Christ's right to rule with authority and power to which God said this, you are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Well, today, we're going to pick up with the last verses that we left off hearing last week because everything going forward in Mark hinges on that good news. And here it is. Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Ooh, there's that believe. 
believe and act probably, right? So here we are. We're just 15 lines into the gospel, and Mark takes us all the way to grown-up Jesus and his public ministry. No Christmas, no great escape to Egypt, no getting left in Jerusalem, no winemaking. Mark is moving at a clip. And so if we're just skimming along line by line, the life of Christ might seem a little bit of a blur. But it's suggested that when we read Mark, we should read not just for these apparent lines, but for the layers beneath and between them. In fact, an excellent argument can be made that Mark did not foreshorten the story of Jesus, but he extended it. He actually overlaid Christ onto the story of humanity from creation through the formation of Israel as God's chosen people, through the first great act of salvation, which is the exodus of Israel out of Egypt, through the prophets, and to the fulfillment of God's promise to bless the future family of Abraham, inclusive of its kings, especially through Jesus. So today I want to talk about how we can read Mark with that kind of imagination. So here we go. In chapter 1, which starts the beginning of the good news, Mark makes this literary allusion to the creation in Genesis, which reads, in the beginning. And somewhere thereabouts, you might agree, humanity begins. And at the beginning of the narrative, humanity is generalized, and it's good until it isn't. And humanity's relationship toward God, the Creator, is good and it's perfect until it isn't. But then the biblical story gets particular. It narrows in focus to the formation of one nation, one people who are supposed to be beacons to that broken world and to represent God as its hope of restoration and reconciliation. That act and promise began in Abraham, through whom Israel is formed and purposed. And that purpose was clear, to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, to represent God to the world, and to make a straight path for the world to follow to him, to proclaim the word of God, to be a light to the nations, to draw them back to one true God, whose blessing was promised to them. But Israel did not walk a straight path. Their hearts wandered far from God, to whom generations had pledged their exclusive love and obedience in worship. Now that history is long and winding and sordid. Over and over, the Old Testament writers interpret the dire circumstances of Israel as being the direct result of their collective choices to serve other gods, to forge their own ways, to forget their side of the promised relationship toward God, to chuck God and choose the world. And over and over, the prophets warn Israel to get it together to take up their role, to fulfill their purpose for the sake of the world. And that goes on until we finally meet John, the last Old Testament prophet. 
Not Old Testament, the book. Old Testament, the time frame, the Old Covenant. So John is the messenger, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness who must prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight because Christ has arrived after generations have wandered and strayed. And so as Mark shapes his gospel account, he's noting that the arrival of Jesus marks a cosmic shift in the whole human project. Jesus taps in. Christ the Messiah Messiah comes and stands in for Israel. There's some parallels that might help us see the comparatives that Mark's implying. So we have Israel. They're chosen. They're formed as God's people, his ambassadors, his representatives. And there's Jesus, incarnated, son of God, the embodiment of the divine, truly his representative in the most literal sense. We have Israel, called to be royal priests and a holy nation, and Jesus, the high priest, the holy one of Israel. Israel, called to be light to the nations, Jesus, the light of the world. Israel is brought through the waters of Exodus, through the Jordan into the promised land. Peter talks about that as their baptism, and here we have Jesus baptized in the Jordan. We've got Israel wandering 40 years in the desert, fear, grumbling, refusal to just rely on God. And then Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness to prepare for a ministry that is utterly dependent on God and to show that he's acting in accordance with his will. And finally, here's Israel. They've set and followed a crooked pathway, which Isaiah and John both say must be made straight. And then we've got Jesus who says, I am the way, and of whom the writers of Proverbs say, he, the Lord, will make your paths straight. So the nation of Israel had a job to do. They didn't get it done. And this isn't a critique. I'm not saying that any nation would have done it better or gotten it right. I'm just reading here that their time at that task is over. Time was fulfilled. The Messiah had come to take up the mission in himself. Christ had come to relieve the nation, to personally stand in for Israel for the sake of the world. Let me ask you this. Have you ever had to update or figure out your phone or your computer? So you had to call, <laughs> yeah, hands up. Uh, the Geek Squad, the Genius Bar, the IT department for your company, or anyone younger than you. <laughs> well, in my house, Bonnie is all those things. So a few weeks ago, I wanted to make a reel on Instagram. I didn't want to bother to learn how. I did not want to watch a tutorial. So I just asked Bonnie to show me how, to which she just replied, just give me your phone. It'll be faster this way. And that reminded me of a clip that we've got for you. It just crashes every time my screensaver comes up. All right, let's run a test. Just type in xy dot violator slash 467f46. Type in... Move! It just crashes every time. So, now I don't think that Jesus was IT guy level rude. But I am saying that Israel was just sort of sitting at their desk, 
not being productive. They were hired, let's say, to do desk-related work, like tap-tap, computer, whatever. They had manuals that could have directed them to get on task. For Israel, it was, it was prophets, it was teachers. And the IT guy did give some like really direct commands, like click this, input that. So what was left for the IT guy to do? Just move. Move over, Israel. Jesus takes over. Just kind of takes the keyboard, sits in the big chair, makes things right, makes things happen. And here's how Mark frames all of that. Step one, Jesus comes in, he gets baptized. The sinless king of Israel takes on Israel's whole history of willful disobedience and wipes the slate. He is the full representation of God to this broken world, and perfection begins and ends in him. Through Christ, actually, and symbolically through the Jordan, sin is washed away. Step two, Jesus gets ready. Christ enters the wilderness, demonstrating the placement of his mental and physical and spiritual self into the hands of God. His self-denial indicates resolve regarding the sufficiency of God. Step three, Jesus gets his team together. The Israel project is done. It is all Jesus now. But Jesus begins his ministry by preparing for his own end. For the succession of his ministry will one day be in the hands of his friends. And so here we can pick up at verse 16 where Jesus calls the first disciples. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Jesus sees, he calls out, follow me, and immediately Peter and Andrew are moving with him. Jesus sees, he calls out, follow me, and immediately James and John are moving along with him. The mission is movement. And we can't imagine that there was any discussion or hesitation or packing, wife calling, dog feeding, none of that, because Mark is just pointing us to immediacy. There's this imperative, this time sensitivity to the call and response that I think we're meant to notice and feel and take to heart. Israel missed their moment. It was a long moment. This was not to be the case for Christ followers anymore. The call goes out, response follows. Jesus invites people to move on with him and followers hop to it. Let that be instructive. Christ came in the fullness of God's time, and he will come again. And the time to journey with him between then and now, and the time of his coming again, is this meantime, and there Christ continues to call and to invite. It's on us then to move with the immediacy of a fisherman dropping their net letting go of their up-to-that-moment sense of self, 
their source of productivity, their reason for getting up in the morning, trading the fruit from which they supply their people with something of greater value. Now, Christ told Peter and Andrew, James and John, I will make you fish for people. And with that, I think he was saying, what you've done in life now is going to be useful, but I have a new application for your skill set. Follow me, and I'll show you what I mean. So nets are dropped. The light of the world has drawn four men to himself into the mission of God. That's how it's done. Israel was displaced, and as that happened, Jesus was demonstrative. Immediately, in every sense, Jesus is the way. And remember, we've already learned from Mark that light came into the world and lit the way through process. Dedication to God, public profession, we can see these here. So first, there's this commitment of oneself to God. There's this public profession of faith, an act of repentance and reception of grace through baptism. Then there's this period of intentional readiness, and we still call that discipleship. It clarifies and it forms a person's right relationship toward God and the understanding of his mission. And then there's finding fellowship, the people that you walk that mission with, that carry on after you. And then it's go time. And go time actually overlaps the other steps because the people of God are meant to do this whole journey together. And that leads us to the next part of today's text and to the primary activity of God's mission, which is simply to tell, to teach the Christ story. And we now know that that is also Israel's story and the story of humanity all the way back to creation. So let's catch up with Jesus and his starting team. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. What did Jesus teach? What are the specifics? I don't know. Why don't I know Mark? Well, let's look back at the method of Mark's writing. This wasn't about writing a prescription for fame-inducing preaching. This was about Jesus's authority again. This was a demonstration of Christ's authority to speak and interpret the, God, the word of God as one who had full knowledge of its true meaning. And the response from the crowd was, that was amazing. And it was about Christ's authority beyond the earthly realm and humanity. Whatever Jesus taught in that synagogue, he knocked the socks off of his disciples 
but he also demonstrated his authority beyond this world. The unclean spirit in the man who was present immediately recognized and acknowledged Jesus. Now, if you've been following the GP for any time, you might know that we spent the last few months studying Peter's life and story. And you might remember that he was the first disciple to declare, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But as we're pacing with Mark right now, we're like five minutes into Peter's following Jesus. His nets are probably still wet on a beach somewhere. We have no reason to think that he or any of the disciples have any real idea about where they're going or whom they're following. But the demon does, and he nails it. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus says, shh. And he commands the spirit away. And then the witnesses know that this, whatever this was, this was a thing. And again, all of that is Mark's shorthand for what I think we're just supposed to take away. Jesus is doing a new thing. Jesus has the authority to do it, and Jesus has the power to do it. And with that, there's an implicit message that follows along that we're still meant to respond to. The kingdom of heaven is here, and it's him. He's the king. Honor him. And the king leads with power. Follow him. And under those who are new to the Jesus story, this message is, come follow. To believers, the message is, keep moving. And notice how the two hold together. For everyone, the message remains, come follow, keep moving. And then maybe also, small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And by the way, Christ alone has set that straight path for life, and he's the gate, and he's the gatekeeper. So life is our present task. We are made to live it with fullness, with abundance, not necessarily in a material sense, but full of grace, and with the knowledge that we are well-loved, and that hope and justice and mercy will abound, and that the back's of corruption and oppression and deception will finally be broken. Which brings us to our individual part in this chapter. Humanity was made to relate to God in peace, to experience shalom. Israel was formed to lead the nations back to God, all together to know his peace and to share his love. Christ came and took up the mantle of holy nation and high priest to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. He himself became the way and the truth and the life, the means of grace and peace for all of humanity. In the same way that Christ stood, though sinless, for Israel in baptism, he also went innocently to the cross and took death on himself so that we might each live now in him. Christ moved into the place of Israel and demonstrated in himself the way we should all live daily. He showed the way back to beauty and peace 
and generosity and wisdom and perfect relationship. And in incredibly short order, Mark summarized all that Christ did. And so far, it includes all of these. An affirmative response to God, the exchanging of our priorities for his, which is like the laying down of our preferment for our own nets and our own fish and putting our hands on his net and on the object of his affection, which is humanity. And it's growing in recognition of his power and glory even as we're on our way. And it's keeping company with faithful people, telling the story of Christ, bringing healing, and casting out the very source of earthly oppression. All of that is for us to live into now. By the time Mark wrote this gospel account, Jesus was gone, Peter and Paul were dead, the scattered church was left to carry on the mission that Christ stepped into. It was the project that last week Nate called restoration. Our movement should be toward that very same restoration. And we do that, we affect that by living toward God in Christ. And here's what that might look like. Daily, we get up, we affirm our identity in Jesus. Daily, we live into our purpose. And that's committing our hands, our heads, our hearts to his ends. Daily, or maybe moment by moment, we grow and we learn. We learn to see the sacred and the divine woven into the whole fabric of creation. Daily, by word and deed, we preach Christ in love. Maybe these goals aren't easily checked boxes, but movement allows for that. So the idea is just keep moving forward. Daily, we lend ourselves to healing, and to that end, let this be our prayer. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where, is the, where there is discord, union. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And when there, where there is sadness, joy. And last, daily, we fight oppression. And that means that Jesus is not the only one standing in the place of those in need anymore. His followers disciples, anyone who sees right from wrong according to his rule is standing in the gap for the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed. It's us standing and pointing to damaging systems and pulling out the bricks that let them stand. Movement means doing for others what Christ did for us and for Israel for the sake of the world. And we know that the gospel, that Christian living, is not just a one-off statement or a project, but a daily commitment to followership. And it's not a solo project. Again, we read that Christ following is this inclusive collaboration, constantly extending invitations so that the work succeeds each generation. And the work is good. It was good in the beginning, it was good in Christ, and we can taste that goodness if we participate in it. So I'll end with this. Taste it. Respond. 
move. Or as Peter said it better, you have already found out how good the Lord really is. Come to Jesus Christ. He is the living stone that people have rejected, but which God has chosen and highly honored. And now you are living stones that are being used to build a spiritual house. You are also a group of holy priests. And with the help of Jesus Christ, you will offer sacrifices that please God. Living stones are animated, and they build in the present. As a group of priests, we all know our goal and our purpose. And more than anything, we know that we are helped. We are not alone on mission. Instead, we are called to move along with Christ in and under his direction. And to that, I say, let's get moving. Amen.